Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. And today's teaching text comes from Mark 9, verses 30 to 41. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for the one, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in, a name, in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we say someone cast we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will be no means lost in his rewards. This is the word of the Lord be to God. Thank you so much, Marcellus. So it was the great composer Leonard Bernstein who was once asked, what is the hardest instrument to play? And this is his response here. Second fiddle. I can always, (laughs) there you go, Katie. Second fiddle. I can always get plenty of first violinists to find one who plays second violin with as much enthusiasm. Now that's a problem. And yet if no one plays second, we have no harmony hard to go second. It's even harder to go last. And here is Jesus's invitation for us. It's to go last. I'll never forget my last day of high school. I was the type of high school senior that was last to get to school, and I always wanted to be the first one to leave. I never wanted to be there. Probably why I had like a 2.7, 2.8 GPA. That's neither here nor there. But on the last day of school, I remember I had it set in my mind. I will be the first one to leave here. And so I was ready, the bell rang, and I started running out to my car, but some other classes somehow got out early, and students were already backing out, the parking lot was already filling up, and so I was like, all right, I have to figure this out. And I drove the most obnoxious vehicle of all time. It was an 89 Chevy Blazer, six-inch lift, This is not my car. I couldn't find a picture, but this is exactly what it looked like. Just absolutely absurd. Uh, My uncle gave it to me. My dad and I uh, built it out. Six-inch lift, 33-inch tires. We had, like, this exhaust system on it. Like, it it was pretty rough. I know. But I get in my car, and I'm like, I'm not going to be last out of here. Like, I refuse to go last out of this parking lot. And so um, what, I, what I dreamed up, I jumped in my car, I can kind of, like, see as I'm sitting in there, and I look out, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to create, like, this pathway. I'm going to jump this curb. I'm going to drive down this sidewalk, down over into this median dirt area. I grew up in Arizona, so it's, like, all this dirt and cacti. I'm going to drive through there, go into the teacher's lot, drive through there, and then I'm going to turn left right into the light, 
and at least I won't be last. And this is a very true story. I get in my car, and I go to jump the first sidewalk, and the drive shaft of my car falls on the ground. Like, no joke. Um, I learned something that day. There's something called a U-joint in your car, and it holds your drive shaft into place. Mine just happened to snap. It was only like $150 to fix it. It was mind-blowing. But if you don't have a drive shaft, you can't drive. Okay? This is, this is what you're learning today. Needless to say, I went very last that day. And here in our passage, um, Jesus is, has an invitation to us. It's to reorient our desires, to be first and to be great. And Jesus, what he's been doing where we're at in the book of Mark is he's actually giving greater clarity into what's next, where he's headed, Jerusalem, the end of his life, the cross, and he's headed, beelining it for that. And where we are is a little bit frustrating because the disciples just don't seem to get it. Like, why can they not just figure it out? Like, why, why do they always misunderstand Jesus? Why are they always having the wrong discussion? And so they get to a house. It's possibly Peter's house. And Jesus is like, well, guys, I was walking a bit ahead of you. What were you discussing along the way? Crickets. Silence, right? Silence. Because what were they doing? They were talking about who was the greatest, right? The apex, first chair, the goat, right? This is what their discussion is all about. And Jesus says in uh, verse 35 with um, the, the, the utmost simplicity, but a real challenge for us, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that so beautiful, right? Like, this is really nice, right? But the reality is, is that actually subverts our way of thinking and being in 2022. That's hard, even though we look at it and say that's beautiful, and you may think, well, yeah, that actually does seem to resonate today, but Jesus said it then, and so it had to resonate then as well. And actually, I was doing a bunch of reading um, this week and thinking about the culture in which Christianity was born into. And what we find um, in each gospel account is the gospel writers are actually giving us a balance. That's my son, by the way. Um, is giving us a balance of who is great, of what is great. Um, and the thing that I came across this week that I thought was really fascinating was in, um, we're in Mark's gospel, but we're going we're gonna to be helped out by the other accounts here. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus, or the, the writer spends a lot of time contrasting Jesus with the greatness of the day, particularly in the birth of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 2, it simply starts out in verse 1 like this. This is what you read at Christmas. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, and what you find in this narrative is a lot. I don't want to read the whole thing. But basically, Herod in that time would have been the epitome of greatness, not Jesus. And what you find in that passage is that um, Herod has a bit of um, jealousy, anger towards Jesus because Jesus is going to be called the king of the Jews. And then what we read there is that he's tricked by the wise man. He becomes furious. And then what does he have ordered? He has ordered all the male children of Bethlehem who are two years, older, um, two years uh, and old and younger killed. It's a horrific story, but it's, um, it's an expression of power. And what the, the gospel writer is actually doing early on in Matthew's gospel uh, to a predominantly Jewish audience is he's trying, trying to draw a difference between the way of Jesus and the way of Herod. And so you find Herod is born of noble birth, lineage, right? Jesus, born in a feeding trough. Herod, wealthy. Jesus, poor. Herod, the leader of armies, holding this sort of political swagger, holding his throne for over 40 years. Jesus leads 12 people, consistently moving away from the centrums of power and had a three-year run. 
And then Herod, the greatest builder of the day. And then Jesus, uh, a carpenter, likely did construction for one of Herod's sons. And so in the first century cultural context, greatness would function like this. Wealth, education, social status, lineage, and the ability to exert power over others. Does this sound familiar, right? And so I just want to put forth here, but as I want to get to this text, but I just want to put forth so that you and I are thinking about greatness. We're like, oh, wow, that's, a, that's an interesting idea. But what if, what if you actually are seeking to be great? And how can you reorient maybe today? And so I just want to put up three things here that maybe you would just be open to, that greatness in our time looks like competency, influence, and more. Competency. We live in a time and a place where hard work is praised, right? Our society, our city values position and achievement and success and control and convenience. And I want to be, I want to, I want to like pause right there and say, we know from a biblical perspective that work is beautiful, that work is, is a gift from God and that we get to work. And that's actually a very true thing. But equally so, some of us could confess that um, we've become obsessed, that it takes over, that we work so hard so that we can actually say out loud, like, I made it. Like, and I could just speak for me here. It's like embarrassing how, um, how sometimes, um, how insecure I am if you just peel back a few layers. Like, we're working so hard, but what we're really saying is, am I good enough? Do, do other people notice how hard that I work? Do other people see my plaques and my degrees? Right? We live in a culture obsessed with accomplishment and expertise, and so we work and we work and we work and we toil and we grind and we say, wait, am I capable enough? Right? Am I proficient? Do people see that I did this by myself, right? When I first moved to the city, I, um, I got a job um, as a barista at Blue Bottle Coffee. Um, I had previously been a pastor um, for seven years and didn't even realize um, how much I held that um, as like a badge of honor. That like, wow, like I, I've done this for seven years. It's a very exciting thing. And I began noticing as I was a barista, as if like the work was below me, I was like, I I want people to know that I'm brilliant outside of making lattes, you know? I just want people to notice me in that way. And I remember this one day in particular, um, my friend and I are, are making a customer's drink, and my friend really um, was very brilliant. And so we got to talking to this customer, and the customer said, well, what are you guys passionate outside of, you know, being a barista? And uh, my friend, so cool, he was like, well, I'm like, this is kind of like my side thing right now. I'm actually heading to Harvard Medical School this fall, and... And the guy was, like, so impressed. And he really was. And so this, this guy that I was working with, with was genius. And the customer was like, wow, like that, that's really amazing. And then he looks at me, and he's like, what about you? <laughs> and um, I got puffed up with pride. And I was like, well, actually, you know, I'm starting a church. Um, and I probably said something stupid, like, it's a church startup. Or, like, I'm a, I'm a spiritual entrepreneur or something. Like, I probably said something ridiculous. And he just looked at me, he's like, okay, good luck with that. And he just, he left, you know. And so there's this sort of narrative of competence that drives us to prove our worth and our value, and that's greatness, right? What about the next one, influence? I'll be quick here. Like, greatness is found in influence, right? The amount of influence we have over or exert over other people, right? We live in the time of the influencer, Right? You get on Instagram. I don't know how TikTok works. I'm not on there. But like, you get on Instagram, and what are your eyes sort of naturally drawn to when you go onto somebody's profile? Drawn to how many followers they have. Like, it's just kind of a natural thing that you would look at when you pulled up Instagram. And so we unknowingly ask, well, what kind of crowd are they drawing? How much influence do they have over other people? 
And then we get, begin to evaluate content, and slowly but surely, what actually happens oftentimes is a little envy or jealousy arises up in us without knowing it. And then we're like, I could do that. And you scroll and push it away, right? And so we actually think unknowingly oftentimes that greatness um, lies in influence. And then what about m- this idea of more, right? In our culture, greatness or success always seems to be like just outside of our reach. Like we just made it. And here's the reason that is. You're only successful in this world if you're more successful than other people, right? Like it's not, it's not enough to just be smart. It's not enough to just be good-looking. You have to be smarter and more good-looking than other people. Then you've become successful when people are below you in that way, right? This is greatness in 2022. And I might just add sort of an addendum there. Um, I think that greatness often lies in, for some of us, we'd say greatness actually lies in freedom. Like, if I could just be free to do my own thing, if I had enough money, if I had enough time to just do whatever it is that I wanted, to not be constrained by a clock or uh, by finances or whatever it may be, then I would be truly great. And so I bring these things up not to unearth shame or fear in you, but to simply ask, am I unknowingly adopting the culture's view of greatness without evaluating what is right, what is better, and what is true? And I love this passage because in the midst of the cultural noise that, that they were in then and that we're in now, Jesus does this sort of experiment in verse 36. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. And I love the parallel in Matthew's Gospels. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn... And become like children. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So here's Jesus, right? I'm going to die. I'm going to the cross. This is his second time saying this in the gospel. And then one of the disciples saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, right? And what does Jesus do? It's like picks up a kid. I don't know where to get the kid, you know? It's like <laughs> sets him the child in the middle of the room, he's like, I sort of imagine Jesus just like pausing for effect, sets it down, just backs up, he's like, greatest, goat, right there, like the greatest of all time. And the word child here actually indicates uh, a little child, Um, definitely under seven, probably scholars say it's like zero to four, and it's easy to miss the, the weight of this because we think children, and um, we're very positive about that. We think children are great in our culture, and uh, children are very highly esteemed, and we're very careful with our children. But in this time, this would have been shocking. In Jesus' day, children were without status. They were often treated like property, and they were never held up as, as examples of anything. And so they would have, the disciples and the, the crowd would have, would have saw Jesus setting this child and thought powerless, insignificant. And Jesus steps onto the scene and says, it is not Herod's job to, uh, or it's not the child's job to become great like Herod. Rather, it is Herod's job to become like this child, to mirror the child in their humility. And Jesus could mean a lot here um, as, as you think about it. He could be speaking of the child's innocence. He could be speaking of the child's gentleness or their simplicity. Uh, children are naturally inquisitive. They're largely free of, like, malice or rivalry in, like, an intense way. They have no interest in wealth, uh, maybe, like, ice cream, but, like, outside of that, like, it doesn't really matter. Um, children eventually accept punishment, right? They, there's a measure of obedience in them. They tend to uh, naturally love their neighbor. They're more curious. They're natural learners. So I think Jesus could be really saying a lot here. 
But in, in uh, Matthew's gospel in verse 4, it says, whoever humbles himself like this child. And I think that's it right there. I think this is Jesus' invitation to us today is that humility. How are we thinking? Not, not thinking down on ourselves or like a, a, a form of, of you know, um, like denigration of ourselves, but how do we actually just think of ourselves less? How do we do that? I think that's the main thing that Jesus is speaking to here. We actually get the word humility um, in English from the Latin, hummus, um, meaning soil, ground, or earth. It, it simply means to be of the earth, to be grounded and honest. And I love this idea of humility as a way of being truthful about who you are and who you're not, right? Humility is just understanding and just being true to yourself about who you are. And you can say honest things about, like this band can stand up and say like, Hey, like, we crushed it today. Like, that, that, that's, that, would, that would be humility because it's truth, right? And then um, to be truthful about who we are not. And what I want to submit to you here is that humility is generally the thing that we value in other people, but we seem to shy away from in ourselves. Right? We look, we, who, who wants um, proud friends? Right? No, we want humble friends. We want to be surrounded by humble people, but in ourselves, it's that thing we wrestle with and struggle James chapter 4, verse 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So here's what I want to do. In, in the passage in Matthew, it says, unless you turn. The Greek word there for turn is strepho, and, and it means to turn yourself towards. It, it, it indicates a movement. It means that there's actually an ability to become more childlike. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time is I just want to suggest to you four turnings, four movements that you and I can make um, and they would assist us in a life of humility to give us some, some sort of actionable steps. And so here, here's the first one. is a movement towards humility is from intellect to obedience. Jesus says, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. I'm sure the disciples are confused, right? They're like, Jesus... What are you talking about? Like, we've been following you. We've been trying to figure out. We've been trying to adjust um, how we speak, our way of being. We've been trying to learn how to follow you. And now you're telling us to become like the person that's most unlearned in the room. Like, this, I'm so confused, right? Uh, and I want to be careful here because the, uh, the Greek word for disciple is mathetes. And it literally translates as learner. A disciple of Jesus is a learner. We take that to mean a follower, and I think that's a pretty good understanding of it. But I want to be cognizant that if we live in a culture of competency, of influence, and more, intellect becomes extremely important, right? The more you know, the better, especially in a culture where you can monetize easily your intellect and ideas. But in a lot of communities, in a lot of churches, we've turned intellect into the goal, without even knowing it. And there's a sort of spiritual pride that comes with an intellectual seeking. And so what do I mean by an, uh, a movement between intellect to obedience? I mean, in general, that you and I don't have a knowledge problem, we have an obedience problem, all right? So uh, imagine it like this. Uh, imagine it's uh, a random weekday night, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, whatever, and tomorrow morning you have an uh, important class or an important meeting, whatever it is but you're also hooked on some show, all right? House of Dragons, I don't, I don't know what it is, whatever. What do you know in your head? You know that eight hours of sleep is going to be crucial for your health. It's going, to be, um, it's going to keep you sharp for your meeting or for your class. It's just going to be all around better for you, right? Intellectually, you got it. 
but the show is on. It's 42 minutes. If you skip the recap, it could be like 38 minutes. You'll brush your teeth during like some dialogue. So like you're at like 33 minutes, right? Like not that big of a deal, right? You know what you should do intellectually, right? But why do we always betray ourselves, right? We're always betraying our intellect in that way. I, I had stomach issues for years. I, I guess I still do. I've tried changing my diet, and guess what? It worked every single time. Like, less sugar, less grease. I was like, let's just explore what's helpful. Every time I felt better, and every time it was like this slow drift back to Levain cookies. Like, I don't care anymore, right? In these scenarios, we're smarter then we are obedient. And this is true regardless of what you believe. If you're following Jesus, if you're not following Jesus, this is just true. We betray our own standards. And so information does not automatically mean transformation. We're generally smarter than we are obedient. We know what we should do. From a general perspective, we need to learn, but we're smarter than we are obedient. And so I want to bring this to the spiritual life really quick here. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says this, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. What, what, what do we say? We, we just sang a song about Jesus being Lord. What does it mean when someone's your Lord? It means they're your boss, right? This is, this is what the passage says. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. And some of us in the room, we don't need any more information. We need to start doing what Jesus said. Like, it's just, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't need to go into all the details of that for you. I don't know exactly what that looks like for you. But some of us, we, we, we don't need inf- more information. We need to do what Jesus says. This is a movement from intellect to obedience. All right, let's keep going here. Um, the next one is from cynicism to joy. A number of years ago, I had a, a, a group of friends that I would met, meet with. Um, uh, there was five of us, and we just created this space Friday mornings at this local coffee shop, 6.30 in the morning. Like, no one gets up at 6.30 in the morning unless it's important. And we would go, the five of us, and we would just share highs, lows, wins, losses, just like it was free space to just share. We knew that was what was said there was going to um, stay there, and it was just a safe place to talk about relationships, our spouses, frustrations at work, and just pray for one another. And over time, it was this beautiful space, something I really, really loved. And over time, the conversation started shifting. Debate and disagreement arose. We started talking about different theological perspectives, purpose of the church, the validity of the Bible. And these are very important things, no doubt, but it wasn't what the space was created for initially. And we actually betrayed that space because um, cynicism began to seep in, and it became this place where we were no longer really friends, but we were arguing. And so what happened? Before long, most of us started showing up late. I didn't want to be there. And our collective cynicism was robbing us of joy. Now, Dallas Willard says it like this. He says, we live in a culture that has cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. You can almost be as stupid as a cabbage as long as you doubt. That's what happens when cynicism and pride begins to seep in over against humility. Pride says, I I know it. I got it figured out. I have an answer for everything. Um, While humility explores with a sort of curiosity. And that's, that's why we had cynicism take over our group like a cancer and destroy it. I eventually ended up leaving um, that group. And one of the things I realized about myself as I get older is that I have to fight for joy, right? I have, to, I have to push back against cynicism. The world is never light on things to complain about or be skeptical of. And so we have to fight for that type of joy. And I think when Jesus takes this child and sets um, the child in the room, it, it's a wake-up call for the disciples, He's like, guys, you're fighting about greatness. Your head's in the clouds. 
We're, we're on a mission here. We're, we're trying to love people. We're trying to serve people. And look at the simple joy of this, this child, not distracted by questions. And so my question for you this morning is, where has the inner child been stolen from you? Like that childlike joy and life, it just gets sucked out of you, robbing you both of joy and taking away your curiosity. And so if you seek humility, move from cynicism to joy. Let's keep going here. From me to others is the third one here. From me to others. Jesus is um, giving the the disciples and us a, a vision of what it looks like to be a community actually focused outwardly, right? A community focused on the least, the little, and the lost. Right, he takes the, the child, in, in Mark's gospel, um, he takes the child, sets him in, in the middle, and then says this in verse 37, whoever receives or uh, welcomes or is hospitable towards one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Right? You ever have a friend that's just like, you, you're going through something, you go to them, and one, they're not getting it, they're not listening, but two, they're sort of stuck in something meaningless, and you're like, I'm actually going through something, I'm trying to tell you about it, you know? I think, don't forget, Jesus is talking about going to the cross, and they're talking about who's great, right? And so Jesus is, is essentially saying here, stop thinking about yourselves and start thinking about other people. Think about this child. Welcome and receive what society at large doesn't value and your greatness will actually lie here. Your greatness will actually be found in giving your life away, stooping down, humbling yourself to serve children, to stand up for the marginalized, for caring for the least of these. And so let me, let me just make this point really practical because this is, this is our fight every single day, to move from me to others. Um, I was reading a book this week um, by Tim Keller. He, he talks, uh, it's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And he uses this really great um, Um, idea that um, a truly humble person fights against taking every idea and um, every story back to themselves. And so imagine it like this. You, um, You talk to your friend about ramen. You know, you're sitting with your friend, you're like, do you like ramen? And, you know, you're talking about ramen, whatever, and then you're like, what's your favorite place? And they start telling you, like, I love a pudo, like the noodles are really, like, they're al dente, like, perfect. You're just, like, out. You're not listening. You're waiting to talk and tell them about Tochin on 36th Street, which is bomb, by the way. All right? 36th Street, Tochin, great lunch special. Anyway, you're in a conversation. What are you actually doing? You're not really listening. You're just getting ready to draw the idea back to yourself so that your friend thinks that you're cool, so your friend, you know, sees your idea as valuable. We do this all the time in conversations where we're not really listening. We're just waiting to talk. And true humility is to stop connecting every experience, every conversation, and every idea with yourself. It's okay for it to be your friend's idea and your friend's idea alone. That's okay. In fact, what it is, is it's a really beautiful posture to say, I'm just going to try and stop thinking about myself right now, and I'm just going to think about this other person. This is a good word for me this week. Um, I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not... Uh, He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. Probably all you'll think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said about him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That's the movement from me to others. And then here's the last one, and uh, it is the most important one, is that we move from independent to dependent. What is more dependent than a child? There's nothing. 
So if you took, if you took my son right now, um, I thought about doing this, but then it sounded both cheesy and dangerous. And so um, my son is nine months old, um, and if you just set him right here, here's what he would do. He would roll to the most dangerous thing and try to eat it, and it would probably be that. Like, he, he would go right over, and he would try to eat, like, the power strip. Like, that would be his thing. My son is completely dependent, right? He's completely dependent on me and my wife. Well, that's good for me and my taxes, but it's exhausting at the same time. And I think what Jesus is, is ultimately communicating, he's actually, like, sort of zooming out. And, he, and I, love, I love in Matthew that he talks about the kingdom of heaven because he makes it bigger. Unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. We're talking about life, death, matter, heaven, hell. Like, this is getting intense, Jesus. Don't go that far. And I think the main thing that Jesus is communicating here is this. You cannot enter the kingdom unless you become dependent on Jesus. It's like, that's it. It's like that intense. It's that big. And the truth is, is that independence is the thing. I kind of added it in there at the end because it's the thing that so many of us say, if I just had like some financial freedom, right? If I, if I just, if I could travel more, I, I, I would probably have less anxiety. I'd be more free. The reality is, is independence is a myth, right? You and I walked in here this morning and we were dependent on something to give us energy. We were dependent on something to give us meaning and purpose. You and I are always, always, always looking for things from the outside to fill us up. And I love that what Jesus is saying here is so much bigger, is you are dependent on something else. You are relying on something to give you meaning and purpose and to save you in that bigger sense. But the step is actually to declare our dependence. It seems a little counterintuitive, right? We want freedom, but we actually need to say, you know what, actually I am dependent on something. And so how do you do that? How do, you, how do you, like, get dependent on Jesus? I know it sounds like, like, okay, how do I, like, what's the step? I think you just say it. I think you pray. I think you say, God, I actually, I'm giving up my own right to organize my life. I'll obey you and not my own inconsistent inclinations. I'll do what you say, and what you actually find in return is that you find the truest version of yourself because we were actually created to obey Jesus. Like, that's what we were created to do, and we find our fullest um, personhood in that, and that's where we find the most security. And so obedience, joy, other people, and dependence. And this morning I was like, oh my gosh, that's Jesus. Like that, that's, that's the person of Jesus. He was given freedom, and yet he gave full obedience to the Father. He experienced the greatest suffering, yet he was the embodiment of pure joy. He was God in the flesh, but he gave his life for others. He needed nothing, and yet he chose full dependence on the Father to the very end. It's such a subversion of how we think. But um, it'll make us the truest version of ourselves and the most hopeful. And so if you want to just close your eyes, um, I want to I read this, this verse here from Philippians chapter 2. Um, and I, I guess maybe what I would say is that this would be my, my hope for us as a church, that we would lead the way in humili- humility, but only because we're following after Jesus, who is the very embodiment of God and humbled himself. And so let me just read this. It's a little long, but just try and take in these words here. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. 
Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. And so, uh, Father, we love you, and as we go through this whole day, it sounds sort of like um, we have some behavior modification to do. Um, but the truth is, is that you perfectly model and embody um, what you long for. You're so kind and you're so good to us. And I pray now, God, that we would be a community that has an air of humility about it, but only because you model it and because you call us to it. I pray for um, us right now, those that are um, struggling struggling to interrupt their friends in a conversation. I pray uh, for those of us who are uh, struggling to feel fully ourselves. And I pray, Lord, that, or I pray too, if, if, if we're uh, struggling with cynicism and doubt, I pray that you would allow us in humility to take steps um, towards understanding who you are. And Father, as we move now to the communion tables, may we be reminded that we fall short, and yet your good news is so good to us. That though we fall short, though we sin, you love us so much, and in your kindness, you go to the cross. And so, Father, we commit this time to you. It's your son's name we pray. Amen.